Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Jen Mannion, where I'm asking, how resilient were history's female husbands? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness. We've got a scintillating episode of Getting Curious for you. Let's introduce our guests. Welcome Jen Mannion, who is a professor of history and sexuality, women's and gender studies at Amherst College. And then Getting Curious audience, I, I did give Jen fair warning on this right before we started recording. And I said, I'm just going to like willingly break my new like journalistic rule where I like try not to like compliment people's looks, but you are giving me like volume you're giving me body on this hair the way that your hair is just like the texture and how it is like sitting atop your head is it's almost giving me like tan france at the beginning of queer eye like because he was like a little bit more salt and pepper then and now like tan's more like a little more silvery so you're giving me tan a la 2017 and i'm living for it i'm absolutely living um so let's let's get in here first of all how are you I'm great. Uh, It's great to be with you. We are so excited that you're here. So basically, here's the thing. In my research for Getting Curious, the TV show, some of our producers and I, um, we stumbled upon the term in history, female husbands. And we were like, female husbands is giving community in the day, honey, female husbands is giving, we are not new. Female husbands is giving ferocity that I am very curious about. So can you help us set the scene? Where and when does this female husband's story begin? It begins in 1746 in Somerset, England. And Charles Hamilton and Mary Creed get married. Now, Charles Hamilton was a, a quack doctor And they traveled around selling ointments and cures. And after about two months of marriage, Mary kind of freaked out and ran to the authorities and said, you know, my husband is a woman. And so Mary makes a sworn testimony with the authorities saying, I married my husband, believing that they were a man and we had sex, and now I think my husband is a woman, and I want to get out of this. And so the authorities really rally around Mary and want to protect her and and believe her. And Charles Hamilton, it turns out, was someone who was assigned female at birth. And, And when they were a teenager, they transgender and they began living as a man. And they were convicted, you know, of deception and fraud and vagrancy and sentenced to six months of imprisonment at hard labor. And they were also publicly whipped in four different towns where they were known to have lived. Charles Hamilton's life becomes the basis for a fictionalized version of it um, that Henry Fielding wrote that, that was also published in 1746 called The Female Husband. And so that's the beginning of the wide circulation of this term used to describe people. Is the criteria for like being considered like a quote female husband in history, like having been caught in what appeared to be a cishet marriage, but then like the one who is the man ended up being assigned female at birth? Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of echoes of current trans violence. It's giving Roanoke. It's giving Nina Maria and the Pinta. Pinto. Uh, what was that third ship? Nina Maria. Pina. No, I can't remember. It was like some name, but the point is, but it's giving like really old. Like, I mean, 1700s is like a hot minute ago. So... When we think about the 1700s, which, you know, speaking of Roanoke, watch me be a journalist. Uh, What are the challenges of documenting historical subjects? What aren't the challenges? I mean, you know, we historians rely on archives, you know, so there has to be some piece of evidence or proof to support what you think is happening. And most records are of institutions um, or, you know, of if they're family papers, they're usually of, you know, rich, famous and powerful people. So 
we know a lot about those people and we know a lot about politicians and governments. But when it comes to learning about ordinary people, we usually have to rely on the words of others. So, you know, what did this police report say? What did this jail report say about someone? And those are incredibly biased sources. But in, in, in when it comes to LGBTQ people, like they're often the only kind of things that we have um, because people who get caught up in the system and arrested for, you know, having gay sex or transing gender. One of the main ways historians have learned about them in the past is through police and court and prison records. I have so many questions. One. Did I just hear you say because they were transing <laughs> genders? That's fucking cool. Is that like how historians refer to like trans issues in the past? If the way that they referred to them in the time was like really fucking derogatory and fucked up. And it's like convenient because it represents like both ways. You don't have to say like this to that. It's just like they were transing gender. So it's like a more fierce, easier way. Yes. I- I'm giving it's giving. Mill Streep and J-Lo when, and that gif when they like stand up clapping. I, okay, give it to me. Did you invent that or who invented that? Susan Stryker, one of the pioneer historians and transgender studies scholars and a couple other people, you know, have been using it in their work now. And, and the other thing that it does is it allows us to talk about people from the past without assuming or presuming that they understood their identities in the same way that you or I might today. So we're saying they did this thing. There's a lot of overlap, you know, between their experiences and our experiences, but I'm not going to put them in this box and say they identified as transgender, but they did transgender. Have we found any cool, like old manuscripts that like managed to like make it through or like any like queer stories that like was in a box that like some cool queer person in the 1800s like passed down to like their second cousin who then gave it to someone else and it's like okay like it's preserved no i'm guessing by your face it's not so no manuscripts no old books the television show gentleman jack that's based on the diaries and life of ann lister is an example of a queer person from the past and and they're one of the earliest like people who actually did leave diaries they were heavily coded and so some people have really worked to decode them to find the references to her sex and her love and her relationships and you know people really claim Ann Lister as a lesbian which makes sense but they were also gender non-conforming so for me they're like one of the earliest queer ancestors so they lived in the 1800s and and they have left thousands of pages of diary records so that's why they're so special because they're one of the few people that we get to learn about their life in their own voice and not through police reports and court records and all that kind of stuff do you know anything about like that coding like was there any like hot fucking like gorgeous queer stuff in there just like would like would like what's like the most controversial thing she said was it like was she like the the breasts of the corset just bouncing bouncing all (laughs) over the place i wanted to bury my you know face in them or something what did it say yeah it's great it's great I guess I'll have to watch the series. I have no good excuse for not having watched that. Like, I probably was just binging British Bake Off and I need to watch more queer historical content. Um, Okay, so then the other thing I was thinking is, when we think about this source material, about these police records and like in the story of Charles Hamilton, even the story of Gentleman Jack, how should we be approaching these materials, um, you know, before we like get even deeper in? Yeah, it's a it's a really important question. And, you know, language and categories are really important to us now, you know, in our own lives and and really in queer history. And so I think, you know, it's important for us to learn about these histories like we deserve to have queer and trans transcestors, too. Um, but the world was also so different, you know, 100, 200 years ago. So 
it's not necessarily helpful or accurate for us to think about these people as being exactly the same as us, you know, in terms of how they understood themselves or how other people viewed them. So, you know, one of the key ideas in the history of sexuality as a field is that, you know, homosexuality as an identity, as 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 something that is interior to oneself was really invented at the end of the 19th century. So that prior to that, people might engage in same-sex sex and it was a sin and it was a crime, but it didn't mean that you were a distinct kind of person because you did it. And that's one reason why punishment was taken so seriously because they wanted to set an example to deter other people from doing it. And they wanted to try to convince you to stop doing it. So that is a major turning point in how we think about most histories of gender and sexuality. That In the late 19th, early 20th century, everything sort of changed and, and got codified into one's sense of self, that this is now not just something I do, this is my identity. And so I think for people like us looking back, it's great to be curious and also a little bit humble, you know, in terms of how much can we really know Mm. and connect the dots between ourselves and these people. So... What are some ways people assigned female could live as men in a time when it wasn't like definitely not the norm and also like not safe and you if were to be caught, you could be threatened with because, you know, that first story that we were talking about with Charles Hamilton and Anne. Like, I bet she did know and they were just like gorgeous lovers and then maybe Charles cheated on her. Maybe Charles cheated on her with the neighbor. And then Anne was like, you fucking slut. I'm fucking turning you in. Fucking bitch, you ruined our lives. Like, we loved each other. And you ruined it. You know? And then maybe afterwards, she was like, maybe like the second city, like, Anne was like, I went too far. Like, I'm so sorry. You know what I mean? Or do you think that, right? Like, don't you think that's probably more likely? That's what it's giving me. I love it. I love it. Or No. Do we know? No, I love it. I love it. We don't know. Oh. We'll never know. I mean, I think that's definitely the case in some of the other relationships. Absolutely. We need juicy details on some. Oh, well, actually, I mean, professional. What are some of the ways people aside to female could live as men? <laughs> well, everyone who is a female husband, you know, was a laborer. So it's really a working class category. And as long as one adopted manhood that was consistent with like, you know, white working class manhood of their time and place where they lived, they had a whole world of occupations open to them that had previously been denied. So the key was... You know, transing gender, you know, fixing your hair, fixing your clothes, thinking about all the the clues, you know, the codes, the signals for manhood that were relevant in your community and making sure that you were doing them. And then people, you know, worked as servants. They worked as tinkers and tin makers. They ran taverns. There were a lot of bartenders. There were shipwrights. You know, just a whole world of, you know, laboring occupations that, that a lot of female husbands and other people assigned female too who weren't husbands, um, had access to. There were a lot of sailors. That was another common thing in the 19th century because the maritime industry was just so huge and it was an easy thing. You know, there was always a shortage of people to go to sea. And they were often teenagers and Mm. people who transgender were also often teenagers. So you could easily get hired as a ship hand. So it's just like basically another reason of like, it's just like further evidence of like how off base JK Rowling is as well. Because we've been having like stunning transing 
mask presenting people for literally hundreds of years. Not that it's funny, but I just sidebar. Did you see her fucking nightmare tweet? And then did you see um, Tanache be like, girl, shut up. It was like the best <laughs> tweet. If you haven't seen it, it was like really viral. It was really funny. And it makes you want to stream Tanache now. Um, so I hear you saying that it was like oh, a lot of working class people, um, you know, needed to conform to like the clues and like the expressions of the people of their time. One person that comes up for me or one issue that comes up for me is like family and like if you came up in a community where people you know knew you as someone who was assigned female at birth um you know or was like living as you're living as female but even just when i say that how do we want to say that as respectfully as how do we say that as like if you're like like was living as female is that how we are supposed to say it no yes well you know it's, uh, yeah, I say a lot of times I say that th- they were raised as girls. Yes. Yes. I like that. So and they didn't get to control that. Right. hundred percent. And then as soon as they had freedom and autonomy, they broke away from that and changed it. But was that a challenge? Like, was, were, would, like, would families ever, like, come looking for them because they, like, thought they were, like, runaways or kidnapped or something? And then they would, like, come out them in their new life? For the most part, no. So a lot of people, a lot of the records that I know about, their parents had died mm. or they they were poor people. A case that I love that there are a lot of records about was James Howe from London in 1766. And both James Howe and Mary Snapes, who became their wife, they were both put out as children, like to be servants in other people's homes because their families couldn't provide for them. There's a lot of financial hardship in these lives. And in in the case of other people, you know, they ran away, like people left home, like so, so no one stayed in the community that they grew up in and were raised in and transgender and you know, lived as a man. There's a, a tremendous amount of movement and mobility for every one of these people. Mm, mm. And then what other challenges w- could like inform someone who is transing gender being outed in these times? Like if it wasn't family, was it always a romantic partner? Was it like, what was it? Yeah. So you you really had to like be seen as a man. And so there's a lot of work involved, right, in making sure that you're hitting all the notes and not raising people's suspicions um, that you might be someone who's assigned female. So a, another case is an example of someone's wife who turned on them, right? So there's a couple. So Henry Stokes' wife felt like Henry was treating her badly, right? And and taking advantage of her and not giving her enough allowance to, to buy things and also said that Henry was abusive. And Henry had a successful bricklaying business in Manchester, England in 1838. And so when Anne wanted a divorce and was like, I've had it with you, she went to a lawyer and outed her husband, to the lawyer to try to get a divorce and to get a divorce on more favorable terms and said, I'm not married to a man. I'm married to a woman. The reports in the press were very sympathetic towards Anne, you know, that her husband was a terrible person who mistreated her and, you know, should give her the house and some property and, you know, more than they were initially willing to do. So it it was fascinating. Like, I mean, people really the state really rallies around the wives to protect the wives against their husbands. So it seems like, I mean, it definitely worked out for her. Henry got run out of town, but def- comes back into our uh, frame a few decades later, having remarried um, and, you know, running a beer house uh, with another woman. So people persist. So what year? So that was 1859. So 20 years later, and we learn about Henry this time tragically because they died. Oh. Uh, their body was found floating in a river um, under suspicious circumstances. Oh, fuck. Was the wife devastated? 
De- yes, definitely. You thank God. So at least, so Henry found love, maybe? Found, yeah, and, and, and adopted the wife's son from another marriage. And they had what seems like a, fa- a beautiful family and a strong community together. And it's it's a wonderful story, you know, until it's not. What other stories? Well, one of my favorites is um, one of the first case that I know about in the U.S., which was in New York City in 1836. And this happens because... George Wilson, this particular female husband, was out partying after work um, and had too much to drink and was passed out on the street. And a policeman came across them and picked them up and took them into the station. And this began a process of interrogation in which the policeman felt like he realized or decided that George Wilson was not really a man. But in in the course of this interrogation, Wilson's wife shows up to the police station. Um, We realize that there are a couple who met in Glasgow, Scotland, um, again, as laborers who came over to the U.S. um, in the 1820s, 1830s, I think the 1820s, we don't know exactly, and traveled and worked. And at this time, they were living in the Lower East Side. Wilson was working, making hats. Um, we don't know um, what Elizabeth did for work, but she surely was probably also working in a factory. And in this situation, the police wants to know, when did you find out that your husband was not a man is basically the line of inquiry. And she says, and, you know, I I don't know if this is true or not. She says that she believed her husband was a man until they were on the ship coming to America. And then George told her that George was assigned female at birth and that Elizabeth at that point didn't have a choice really, but also didn't care and loved them. And they were happy, lived happily ever after as like husband and wife for 15 years before this incident. So then what happened? (laughs) So there's the record stops. So we hope that they were released because there was no law against cross-dressing and, and they really didn't do anything wrong. And their wife came to the station to pick them up and, you know, they were subject to interrogation, a, a potentially a physical investigation, which is alluded to, um, which is terrible and shouldn't happen to anyone. Um, but then I think we have reason to believe that they were just let go which was often the case because they really hadn't done anything illegal. How did you, as a scholar, start to, like, find these stories? Well, they're in newspapers. I mean, old newspapers are amazing. And it used to be that you would sit in an archive with one issue of one paper and flip the pages and you could spend what, an hour to just reading one day's paper. But now old newspapers have been digitized and a lot of them are available for free online through, you know, different websites and including the Library of Congress has like a phenomenal digital newspaper collection for the whole country for, you know, hundreds of years. And so you can search keywords Mm. And and then just see, oh, there were 30 or 100 different newspaper articles about George Wilson in 1836. How many in 1836? Oh, hundreds. So this George Wilson story was everywhere. They were all. This is why it's so amazing, because it's not just that George Wilson got arrested and this happened. The local press reported on it. But then... It was like exciting news. But then it just stopped and we have no idea what happened with 130 something articles. The fuck? So it just was like, oh, this happened. But then there was nothing of like at the end of the articles. Was he still in jail? Yes. So it didn't say that they let the wife take him home. No. But there's no record in the press of them like being flogged or something. 
Exactly. And, you know, the the actual police records for this time and, and court records are, haven't survived. Mm. So I, I went to the New York City archives to try to track down a different set of records that would verify some of this. And they just they don't exist. Mm. So we really don't know. So. The partners of the female husbands. I'm imagining that there would be like a spectrum of different type of people and like, you know, maybe like lover scorned, like, or like what, who were some of the stories of the people who these female husbands were married to? The female husbands, their spouses didn't have like, you know, a similarly catchy category. Sexy ladies from like the past. (laughs) <laughs> sexy ladies from the past i've been calling them queer wives oh yeah queer wives that's better <laughs> um you know people people living at the time when they lived and you know want us to think that they were all straight women who were duped oh no one was proud no they definitely were proud oh. so i think James Howe's wife, Mary, was proud. They they did this together. So they were both raised as girls, and they decided to get married, and they decided together that James would transition and live as a man, and they ran a pub for 30 years. Oh, yes, in, yes. In partnership. So I think that's an example of a queer wife who said, this is, I'm down for this. This is awesome. This is better than any life that I thought I was going to have. And, you know, so that's one example. Um, Another example, a person called Miss Lewis um, from Syracuse in 1856. She married Albert Gelf and her father hated the marriage and did not like Gelf and wanted to, you know, break them up and destroy it. And said he thought something was different about Gelf and, you know, reported them to the authorities. And and Gelf got arrested and detained. And Miss Lewis was in prison every day visiting by their side. You know, I love Albert. I'm their wife. Uh, you know, this is what I want. You know, stay out of my life, Dad. You know, that kind of thing. Was he okay, Gelf? Well, Gelf was awesome because Gelf had maybe a little more resources than some of these other husbands and hired a lawyer who claimed there's no law against cross-dressing. So I've done nothing wrong. You have no basis for detaining me. And the judge agrees and says, you're right. We can't detain you for 90 days. The longest we can detain you is for 60 days, which was the common term used to detain vagrants. And vagrancy charges were just thrown around like candy. So then they got released after 60 days. And then did they, because at some point, masquerade laws do come into effect, at least in parts of the country. Yeah, so they start. So, I mean, but that was what's interesting. New York has one of the earliest ones, 1845. But what Gelf's lawyer proved in court was that even that law... That was not meant to apply to people cross-dressing. That was a reaction to the anti-rent um, protests and, and people who were masquerading in other ways over, you know, land and property disputes, that that was never meant to apply to people like Gelf. And the judge agreed. Now, as time goes on, judges don't agree with that, and they do apply it to other people who transgender and cross-dress and, you know, ball culture and things like this in in the late 19th century. Absolutely. But it is interesting that in the early years, there's just, you know, a feeling. So this bigotry had to boot and weaponized and grown and developed. Absolutely. But the bones have always been there. So that's really fascinating what networks of community or solidarity did these individuals form or was there any like or were those all kind of whispers when people would read about it in the paper because i would also suppose that much like a bad yelp review like 
a negative experience or a bad experience, like someone being outed or being caught or whatever, you know, outed, caught. I mean, that is what happened, but I just hate that it even has to be said like that. But it's like those ended up in the paper, but there's probably lots of, you know, community and like, there's probably like people that maybe just didn't get caught up in the law and like maybe they just stayed out of trouble. And that's even another thing that's hard to document their going on because they didn't want to be found. I hope so. I believe so. But you're right. I mean, we only learn about people because they're having a hard time and somebody has found them and doesn't want to let them live in peace. The only upside of that that I would say is you could imagine. I mean, I think about this speak for myself because I found this, you know, this one story about Henry Stoke from 1838 was printed in the small town paper where I grew up, which was Pottsville, Pennsylvania. So it's a small rural mining town that had just gotten established and just created a newspaper. And that the story of Henry Stoke from, you know, thousands of miles away was in my little small town newspaper. And so I think, oh my God, I could read about this. You know, it's a terrible thing that happened to them. But that I could even as a kid in 1838 read about this and say, oh, my God, there are other people like me. This is something that I could do. So even when they're negative stories, it still connects people and inspires people. And you can imagine if you live nearby or in that region that you could reach out to that person or that couple and form community. Ah. Okay, wait, was there ever a story of, like, where the queer wife was also transgender? So I don't have evidence of that. That is an accusation that gets thrown sometimes as a way to ruin her credibility as well as her husband's. Oh. But I don't have evidence of that. Nothing like a little bit of trans misogyny to sprinkle into the history of our queer wives. Um... Okay, I just wanted like there to be like some fierce like transgender like femme queens who were just like really giving like I don't know, Jonathan, what is your problem today? Okay, so then okay. When does the term female husband start to fall out of use? In the twentieth century. Why? Or early twentieth century. So I think there are a lot of reasons, you know, it's really an 18th century term. So the fact that it carried on and was used for as long as it was, is kind of remarkable. It was popular in the UK. It really peaked, you know, between 1820 and 1850. And then it gets picked up in the US a little bit later. So 1870 to 1890. And The U.S. press was never as in love with the female husbands as the U.K. was. The stories are shorter. They're meaner. um, They're less, less emphasis on gender. You know, like the U.K. husbands really get celebrated. Like, it's amazing that you were able to do this. This is really interesting. Wow. And, you know, by the late 19th century in the U.S., it's kind of there's like open hostility in these stories. It's like pathologized and villainized. And they're they're basically like you're just women trying to do something that a woman's not supposed to do. So it sort of becomes used in that way. And then it's also used in a lot to to refer to a lot of different kinds of people. So for the first 150 years, it very solidly applied to a white worker who was assigned female, who transgender, who lived as a man and married a woman, period. By the end of the 19th century, it's used to describe lesbians. Um, It's used to describe feminine cisgender men. Um, And it's often caught up in conversations and reflections about same-sex marriage. So it really kind of it starts to emphasize sex and not gender. Mm. 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 So I think it just loses its meaning. So then what is the significance of that shift? And then what terms and categories come into focus next to like diversify the bigotry from the cishets? Well, at least the people in power or whatever. 
Well, it really signals a, a, a critique and rejection of transing gender, but more space for women to express gender in a wider range of ways. And so it does come out of this moment where there was some success for the women's movement. And so women can wear pants. Women can have access to education. Women are getting closer and closer um, to well, white having women. the vote. The white women. Yes. Um, and so the terms that come after this are, well, you know, transvestite. Mm was a concept that circulated during this era. And that was with a real emphasis on just cross-dressing. That was also very popular when I was young. Like, I feel like transvestite was, like, very widely used in rural America in, like, the 1980s. Like, it was on TV shows. It was, like, that was, like, a very, like, common derogatory word to, like, sling around to describe anything around, like, gender nonconformity or even, like, homosexuality or, like, femme-presenting homosexual people. Were you able to see anything positive in it or was it always only derogatory? No, it was always, like you know, like a Jerry Springer type show or like it was always like a, you know, sensationalized talk show thing that was very like, you know, tokenizing and like didn't like humanize anyone or it was like something that was like if I was like dressing because I grew up like always wanting to be in like evening gowns and wanted to like wear like my like girl cousins like clothes and it was like, you know, don't be that like, you know, are you a transvestite like that sort of thing. Like, so personally and on, like, it was just like a widely used word. Yeah, I think in modern times, it's been more used to people who are assigned male. And partly, again, because of like, you know, feminism and just the way gender is policed, that there has been more space for people assigned female to express, you know, masculine gender and, you know, wear men's clothes and not be subjected to, you know, derogatory, like, harassment. Which is, like, also misogyny because it's, like, you know, male is, like, was considered the more powerful, like, fierce thing to be or whatever, which is, like, I don't understand you know, and obviously this is before figure skating became so widespread popular. Cause like, I just, you know, for me coming, I, like, how could you ever look at figures like gendered figure skating and think that being the guy was cooler? Like no offense to male figure skaters, but like, <laughs> just like the girls have like all the cooler spins, the better outfits, like more graceful hands. Like it's just much more fun. So, you know, I digress, but you know, <laughs> but yeah. So I, just, just to say that like, that's interesting that trans, the reason why I brought that up is that like, you know, I was born in 1987. So knowing that like, like that the term transvestite starts to come up in the early 1900s like that was still a term that like you know i mean I think it's even thrown around today in a lot of like rural you know us it's just still like very like widely used term and absolutely is more typically referred to as people that are assigned male at birth and are you know more femme presenting in that way which is why it was obviously like more in my world you know um but what other terms so you have like transvestite what well, else? homosexual, mm. homosexual. So it's the be- sexual, inv- sexual inversion and homosexuality. Oh, sexual inversion. They, they, they come out of this era. And so those categories were really assigned to feminine men and masculine women. And so that's one reason why female husbands become less seen as trans figures and more f- seen as sexual deviants. And uh, as we know, I mean, that's the root of modern gay identity that hasn't, you know, changed very much. The other term, which was much more 19th century, which thankfully we've left behind, is Boston marriages. What's that? Um, And so that's it's more of a middle and upper class, you know, white woman relationship where you're educated and you live together and you don't get legally married to anyone. And people would, of course, debate over what was really going on mm. in these relationships. Mm. But it was a very socially acceptable category. Mm. 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 So when we think about the story of female husbands, how do female husbands start to pave the way for trans people today? 
and how they're even perceived in U.S. and British society. And I'm putting this all together. What that means for your uh, chances of safety or like thriving in society. Well, people have always fought for gender freedom for themselves and others in the face of tremendous resistance and barriers and obstacles from family, from doctors, from policing authorities. This is who we are, and we're going to do it anyway. And and so what you see from the 18th and 19th century stories about them, well, is that fact that people have been doing this for a very long time, that People can have loving relationships and friendships and be a part of a community and it can all be awesome, you know, if people would just leave them alone. Um, but then the other thing you see is that these thinking through, you know, the relationship between sex and gender, you know, that the idea that just because you're assigned a sex at birth, what does that have to do with the gender that you're going to embrace and how you're going to express yourself as a teenager or as an adult? Well, people have been thinking about that forever, you know, and these newspaper accounts just show the community trying to work through, okay, well, what, how did they look? How did they dress? How did they act? Did anybody know? Was this, you know, and they're just, they're, and in, in that process of trying to make sense of, this couple, everyone who's reading about these stories is learning, oh my God, there's sex and gender aren't the same thing, mm. right? We can't, we shouldn't assume or force people um, to, to live, you know, their gender expression in this one way, just because they were, you know, assigned a certain sex at birth. And so when you realize that people have been having these conversations and these debates for hundreds of years and what we're doing right now is not new at all. I mean, it actually makes it seem absurd that this is even still a problem in some people's eyes, that trans people aren't just fully, you know, respected and affirmed in accessing healthcare and employment and identification and just allowed to go on our merry way. It makes modern people seem really retro. And out of it and ignorant and, you know, ignorant of our history, right? And just rigid in a way that even people in the past weren't necessarily. So because so often the press has played a big role in, you know, bringing female husbands like to the fore as, you know, group and in society. And then, you know, sometimes playing a huge role in outing them. And then also because we were mentioning earlier that the U.S. press and the British press covered them differently. How do you think that that compares to the contemporary media's focus on trans people today across the political spectrum? I think it's very similar. I mean, the press uses trans people for headlines in ways that are sometimes, as you mentioned, about all the coverage of, you know, transvestites in your childhood that are really mean and mocking and dehumanizing and you know uh, there's a market for that i guess and you know at the same time some press is really informative and respectful and people can really get like a basic education about our community um individual needs collective struggle and so it's very important um and you know it is a little bit ironic in this moment that the uk media establishment is just full-on anti-trans in really violent, unnecessary, ignorant ways. And yet in my research, the UK press of the late 18th and early 19th century was really curious, really open-minded, and really saw that there was a difference between sex and gender. And for people who were otherwise, you know, law-abiding citizens who had favorable references from their employers and their neighbors, that they were, you know, respected. Mm. Mm. Your research is so fascinating, and you are so fascinating. What initially drew you to this type of research? 
Well, I fell in love with history in college, but there was so little queer and trans history at all in any of it. And so I carried a chip on my shoulder about that. And I think that was part of what propelled me to go to grad school and say, you know, I'm going to write more queer and trans history because we're not represented enough in all the history books that we read. And also at that time, even just, you know, poor and working women, I felt like was another category of people that was really important and certainly reflected my life and my family and that, you know, there's not enough history about them. And so that was what inspired, you know, my first project on the origins of the penitentiary and which is really about, you know, poor and working people who get harassed for being poor um, and, and put in prison and they're mostly black and Irish. So just the power of history to uncover and uplift and tell the stories of people who are really marginalized, you know, by society and don't necessarily have as many opportunities, rights and resources as other people. That's been my driving force. And so the trans project certainly comes from that spirit as well. You know, but the other thing is that, you know, I've taught the history of sexuality to college students for over a decade at that point. And we know that the creation of modern gay identity comes in this moment at the early 20th century when gender nonconformity gets fused with homosexuality. And I'm like, what about before then? You know, like, so there's this moment where being a masculine woman means you're gay. What did they think of female masculinity before, you know, the 1890s? Like, because there's a lot of it. When you look at these old newspapers, there's a ton of it. Like, people are transing gender left and right like crazy. And, like, they weren't necessarily... There's no inherent stigma that says, oh, you were also homosexual. Like, that got created later. And so I thought there's, like, a much richer, messier story of gender that is not about sexual orientation in the 18th and 19th century that we need to know more about. And that's where I found the female husbands. Mm, mm. Was there ever anyone from that time who was like transing gender, but was in like a cishet like relationship, just like a soft butch straight lady who was married <laughs> to a guy? <laughs> so I think a lot of people, and I think, you know, there's a, a handful of people who were soldiers and sailors who lived as men for a time. And then stopped, you know, living fully as men and entered into straight marriages with men. And that's my big question is, what did gender mean to them and their husband? Like, I don't buy this idea that like, I'm going to live as a man for five years and then it, and then it suddenly means nothing to me. And I'm just totally normative, you know, cis woman, as if that never happened, which is how, you know, people have talked about you know, those experiences in the past. Maybe like they were bi, maybe, or maybe they were married to like a gay man and they were both just like, fuck whoever you want and let's just like at least share rent and stuff because it's expensive out in these streets. Absolutely. That's kind of hot. Absolutely. I would love for you if you could like fill in some of the details of these stories where we don't have records. I think you have really interesting takes I have a flair for it, honey. Don't I? Yes, yes, you do. Okay, so if someone's listening to this and they are just like obsessed, can't get enough, need a career change, what, or just like want to do it more as a hobby, like what resources would you recommend for people that are hoping to learn more after listening to this episode? There is a tremendous resource called the Digital Transgender Archive. Mm. And a lot of uh, newspaper articles, but then all different kinds of old-timey records of trans organizations and individuals are digitized and online free for anyone to access. So that's a phenomenal resource. I love Albert Knobs. This 2011 film that Glenn Close made, it captures like a, a trans masculine experience of this era. They're not actually a female husband, but there is another character in the film who I think could be described as a female husband. So this film like brings these kinds of stories to life in a richer way, um, I think, than my book allows. There's some amazing, you know 
transgender history books, um, true sex, black on both sides, histories of the transgender child, transgender history. It's a really exciting area right now, you know, to read in and and to do your own research as well. Uh, So what's next for you and your research? Well, I'm working now more on the history of the LGBTQ community with policing and incarceration and and with an emphasis on early resistance to police harassment and which is, you know, evidenced in a lot of these female husband cases um, and also of other trans people. So I just think we have a much older history of resistance to policing and harassment that we need to learn more about and, you know, celebrate and, and also thinking about how important resistance to policing was in the early LGBT rights movement, you know, from the 1960s to the 1980s, um, that our community and movement has a lot in common with uh, and shared concerns along with Black Lives Matter and that that, you know, connection should be brought more to the fore about the role of police harassment and violence and even to today, especially as we know, um, trans women of color who are subject to such disproportionate harassment and violence. And, and also that trans and non-binary masculine people are way overrepresented in jails and prisons today in the U.S., so just all different ways um, that queer and transness intersects with policing and incarceration. Mm. Mm. I'm so grateful for you and for your time. I feel like I learned so much. I can't even stand it. Professor Jen Mannion, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We're going to put all the links to all of your other work on the episode description of whatever people are listening to this episode on. So we are just, I'm so happy that I got to meet you and we got to interview you. And thank you so much for your time and your research. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And I'm just such a fan of your work for such a long time. So this is a real treat. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Professor Jen Mannion. You'll find links to Professor Mannion's work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. It's so easy and fun. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter if you want to, honey. It's at Curious with JBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.